gone through our study in Revelation, you know, we've finished Jesus' seven messages to the seven churches, and in doing so, we encountered numerous obstacles that threaten God's people. Uh, Within some churches, Jesus exposes lovelessness. Uh, In others, he saw uh, false teaching. Uh, In another one, it was idolatry. In another one, it was these attitudes of self-sufficiency. In another, there was deadness to the things of God. These were obstacles within the church. And then from outside the church, you had others who were forcing Christians into poverty. They slander them in public. They imprison some and murder others. Satan also sets up his throne on earth. And his influence deceives people and it corrupts cities and turns powers against Christians. Now, in the face of these obstacles, you can imagine Christians responding in all sorts of ways. Some would be very downcast in spirit, asking, Lord, how can I hold on? Others would be discouraged, asking, what about all these problems? Why should I think the church is going to make it? Others, perhaps now exposed by Jesus in their disobedience, would be asking, why should I repent? Are there pleasures that are really beyond what I'm getting now? Others have been diligent and they're asking, Lord, we're tired. How do we know your promises? will come true for us. And we can imagine Christians asking those questions because we ask those questions. We look at these obstacles and we say, I don't know, Lord, it's looking pretty bad. How's the church going to make it? Why should I keep going? Are your promises going to come true for me? In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, answer all of those questions with one message. The Lord sits enthroned and the Lamb has conquered. That's why you should hold on. That's how the church is going to survive. That's why you should repent. That's why God's promises are going to come true for you. He sits enthroned in heaven, and the Lamb has conquered. That's how chapters 4 to 5 relate backwards to the seven churches, and they are awesome. They stand together as one unit, but we're only going to cover chapter 4 this morning. They are saturated with the Old Testament, especially the visions given to Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. 
when the Lord revealed His glory to them. So with that in mind, let's read from chapter 4, verse 1. He says, After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. All right, the structure of this passage falls into four parts the Lord opening, the Lord sitting, the Lord encircled, and the Lord worshiped. Let's start with the Lord opening. In verse 1, John sees a door standing open in heaven. He also hears a voice like a trumpet, and we know from chapter 1, verse 10, that that is Jesus' voice. Jesus says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. Now, some have taken this to symbolize the rapture of the church, but the event is limited to John. It is temporary. It happens in the Spirit versus bodily. Also, the imagery is like past prophets, especially Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, when God opens the heavens to His throne. And so, we're reading John's visionary experience. The Lord opens a door, not only for John to see His majesty, but also for you to see His majesty through what John writes. So, in all that you are going through right now, God wants you to see His present reign. When Jesus shows John what must take place after this, He means after this within His vision. It is not a statement limited to 
future events after the so-called church age of chapters 2 and 3. Rather, chapters 4 and 5 reveal present realities. How things are right now. So when we follow John through this open door, what do we see? We see the Lord sitting on his throne. The Lord sitting, that's the next part. Verse 2. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. A throne stands for authority. It's the place from which the king would rule his domain on earth. God's throne, however, is seen here in heaven. And in the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, that was an important contrast. Because earthly kings would rise and fall. Thrones would be occupied, and then they would be emptied. But there was one throne that stood forever. And that was God's throne in heaven. It is the place of ultimate rule. The place of ultimate sovereignty. Now for God to sit, though, this image of God's sitting on his throne, that is, that, that is for God to exercise his sovereign power, especially in judgment. Think about it from the Old Testament prophets, like 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 19, when Micaiah sees the Lord sitting on his throne right before the Lord declares disaster for King Ahab. Uh, in Isaiah 6, verse 1, the prophet sees the Lord sitting on his throne just before the Lord judges Israel for their stubborn hearts. In Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet sees the Lord enthroned just before removing his glory from Israel. Daniel 7 is also relevant because the prophet beholds a future day when the Lord sits in judgment and replaces all rebel kingdoms with the kingdom of the Son of Man. And John now sees the Lord seated on his throne. What's the message? The message is that all earthly kingdoms will soon be replaced. They will soon fall. But John doesn't stop with the Lord's sovereignty and with the Lord sitting in judgment. John also sees the Lord's beauty. Look at verse 3. He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now notice we don't get a detailed description as if a sketch artist could draw God. That is because God is spirit. God is invisible. He dwells in unapproachable light. What then does John describe here? Well, he's describing a manifestation of God's glory. 
and the glory is stunning. Right? It's, it's kind of like looking at the sun. You can't actually describe the sun when you look at the sun. You can describe the light coming off the sun. You can describe the rays you see piercing through the clouds. You can't describe the sun, though, because you can't see it. The Lord's glory is stunning. And John is reaching for earthly language to make sense of God's radiant splendor. Around his throne was a a rainbow, but we can't really think regular rainbow because this rainbow is not the result of light particles refracting through water droplets. It's just there. It shines like an emerald. A beautiful green sparkling jewel. He also mentions jasper and carnelian. Now both are reddish jewels. If you want to see something similar, find Debbie Fields and look at her necklace today. So just a little red jewel there. Both of these are reddish jewels, and this would match Ezekiel's description of that, that he, uh, where, where the Lord has this bright, fiery presence, his fiery brilliance. But something to add is that all three jewels were present in Eden, present in the tabernacle, and will be present in the New Jerusalem. In other words, the Lord's dwelling place in Eden, in the tabernacle, and in the new Jerusalem. The Lord's dwelling place throughout Scripture consistently reflected the colors of these jewels. More than that, when they described the king of Tyre's glory in Ezekiel 28, this is where you also get um, the Eden imagery, but... Ezekiel 28, verses 12 to 13, when he describes the king of Tyre's glory, it's paired with these words, you were perfect in beauty. So when John is is drawing from this language of the Old Testament to describe what he's seeing, he is saying that God's presence was like these jewels, and and, and, and in doing so, he's describing the perfection of, of beauty. He is describing unmatched splendor. So sovereignty, judgment, and beauty. Next we see the Lord encircled. The Lord encircled. Some images we've spent time on before, so I I won't belabor them as much. Uh, For instance, in verse 5, the the lightning and rumblings and the peals of thunder recall Mount Sinai. It's it's a a theophany um, where God manifests His presence like a, a a king riding his chariot into battle with the clouds of dust coming before Him. But here the a raging storm is gathering before the the Lord. Um, And this storm imagery is actually going to repeat itself at the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl. All of which bring 
God's judgments to a close at Jesus' return. I'm already showing my cards there on those things being recapitulated uh, over and over again instead of being uh, strict chronology. We've also looked at the, uh, the seven torches before God's throne, which are the seven spirits of God. John follows Zechariah 4, where the seven flames on the lampstand represent God's spirit. An image we haven't seen comes in verse 6. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal. Now, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 1, saw something very uh, similar. He called it uh, the likeness of an expanse, like a dome that's separating the Lord heavenly dwelling from, the, uh, from, from those on earth. And he says it was like it was shining like awe-inspiring crystal. We'd, we won't see this again until chapter 15, verse 2. And there it appears to symbolize God's victory over evil. So I will save any further comments about this glassy sea until then. Uh, moving out further, John also sees 24 thrones encircling God's throne. He says, seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now some view these human, these these elders as human figures, uh, perhaps even glorified representatives of, of of God's people. I mean, after all, Jesus did promise the church crowns and white garments and a throne. At the same time, uh, as you continue through Revelation, you find these 24 elders functioning like a class of angelic beings. Uh, so, for example, in chapter 5, verse 8, they, they are holding the, gold, the golden bowls of, of, of incense. Um, they also interpret the vision like an angel would. Um, in chapter 7, verse 13, Uh, In chapter 14, verse 3, they differ from the Lamb's people. So it's hard to decide whether these are human figures or angelic figures. And uh, you can have fun thinking more about that later. But a couple of Old Testament passages may uh, offer some more clues here. Daniel 7, 9 speaks of thrones in the plural. in addition to God's ultimate throne, and these thrones represented kind of a heavenly court. Um, Another text is Isaiah 24, verse 23. It's a picture of God's worldwide kingdom exalted above all the others, and it says this, Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and get this, and before his elders glory. Before his elders, glory. And so Revelation 4 may be drawing from this passage to show us God reigning from the true heavenly Zion, and he is glorious before his heavenly court of elders. Uh, Some have also noted from from 1 Chronicles 24, uh, Colby mentioned this to me earlier in the week, um, that there were 24 divisions of Levitical priests under King David. You can see this in 1 Chronicles 24 and 25. So perhaps we have here a heavenly court of priests under the true David, 
and they serve the Lord in ways that God's people on earth should, should serve Him. So, whether angels or humans, though, uh, John's focus is on their function in the passage. And their, their function within the vision recognizes God's reign and exemplifies what we ought to be about on earth. That is, centering our lives around the throne, serving and worshiping the Lord. John also sees four living creatures encircling the throne. He says uh, that they are full of eyes in front and behind. Uh, the, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Now, depending on how you com- combine and, and sort through all the details, uh, these are likely the same creatures that Isaiah sees in Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel 1. Throughout Revelation, they assist with God's judgments on creation. Uh, they seem, they probably seem a little bit weird to us when we, when we uh, consider, when we imagine them in, in our head, but it was common for kings to decorate their thrones with these animal-like creatures. Okay, animals usually symbolized uh, various qualities that, that people came to admire, the, like the lion for valiance. You, you see some of Israel's warriors compared to a lion, because he was they were, they were, the lion is valiant. Um, the ox uh, was usually used for strength. You see that imagery in the Old Testament, right? With the, the horn of an ox uh, compared to kings and, and, uh, and kingdoms. Um, uh, the eagle, lofty, swift, also one that protected their young. Okay? So, one throne that I find particularly significant in the Old Testament is Solomon's. This is in 1 Kings chapter 10. Solomon makes this ivory throne, and then he covers this ivory throne in gold. And on the back of it, he's got an ox or, or calf. And, um, and then on either side of the armrests are these massive lions. And then on each of the six steps down, on each end of the steps down the throne, there were other lions. Okay? But listen to this, this in 1 Kings 10. It says, the like of Solomon's throne was never made in any kingdom. The like of Solomon's throne was never made in any kingdom. Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches. Solomon had calf and lion Statues. God has living beings before his throne. And they are no joke. With eyes all around, they are ever vigilant. With six wings, they soar in their service. When they speak later in Revelation, their voice sounds like thunder. 
So the point is that if you think these creatures are something, think about the one who made them and sustains them and who receives their worship. The point is that on earth, no king excelled Solomon. In heaven, there's a king whose glory excels all kings, including Solomon, put together. So it's no wonder why these creatures worship him. Look now at the Lord worshipped. The Lord worshipped. Verse 8. Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now this title, who was and is and is to come, we we looked at it before in chapter 1 verse 4. It speaks not only to God's uh, eternal existence, but also to, um, to his presence, his ongoing presence with his people in every age. Um, and for that he is, he is worshipped. He is also worshipped because he is almighty. So he has all power. But notice also the refrain, holy, 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 which he's drawing from Isaiah 6. It, in Hebrew, if you wanted to emphasize something, right, you repeated it. So very, very means exceedingly great multitude, right? Uh, or uh, black, black is, it's really dark outside, right? This, this is how it, it works. Um, but a rare find in the Old Testament is when something gets repeated three times. I think it only happens like four times in, in the Old Testament, but, but one of them is right here in Isaiah 6, holy Holy, holy. God is utter, utterly holy. He is in a category all by himself. I've used these words of David's well before, David Wells before, but uh, it's, I think they're helpful to think of God's holiness in terms of his majestic otherness. Right? He's high and lifted up. As well as God's moral otherness. Right? When Isaiah sees the Lord, he says, woe is me. Right? He finds himself exposed as a sinner before the Lord. And so when you, when you hear the scriptures talk about God's holiness, we should think about his majestic and moral otherness. He is in a category all by himself. He is set apart from the world in transcendent splendor. Something else to clarify is, is this. The point here is not that God created these creatures to run like a broken record. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. No, the sheer majesty of God compels their endless praise. That's what happens when finite creatures stand before an infinitely holy God. There is an eternity of discovery. An eternity of something 
more you learn that's beautiful. Something more you see is majestic. Something more you feel is great. And so they are compelled, holy, holy, holy. And it just keeps going, never ceasing. Then when these living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, verse 10 says, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So God is worthy of our worship because He is holy. God is also worthy of worship because He is creator and sustainer. Nothing exists apart from God saying so. Nothing unfolds in the world apart from God holding it together by His perfect will. No one breathes apart from God making them. Hearts do not beat unless God says so. Everything that is, is a result of God's creative power and sovereign decree. And therefore, He deserves our worship. Now, the throne... That's the throne. This throne will remain a uh, central piece, a key theme throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. Everything revolves around the throne. Everything that unfolds in history is heading towards the worship of God on His throne. And that means, for starters, that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, to borrow the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. One glance at our culture, though, reveals a different kind of teaching. Uh, Thaddeus Williams recently wrote an article called Self-Worship is the world's fastest growing religion. And at the top, there's a picture of a guy taking a selfie on top of a mountain. Self-worship is the world's fastest growing religion. And Thaddeus Williams observes several so-called commandments that kind of shape our culture. One of them is this. Your mind is the source and standard of truth, so no matter what, Trust yourself. The truth is within. Uh, Here's another. Your emotions are authoritative, so never question or let anyone else question your feelings. Here's another. You are sovereign, so flex your omnipotence and bend the universe around your dreams and desires. Here's another. You are the standard of goodness, so don't let anyone oppress you, 
with the antiquated notion of being a sinner who needs grace. Here's another. You are the creator, so use that limitless creative power to craft your identity and purpose. Now, giving these uh, trending ideas, Williams goes on to show how our culture is basically catechizing us to believe that man's chief end is to glorify and enjoy himself. It's a problem as old as Adam and as near to the church as the last time you wanted somebody's praise. Or the last time you feared man instead of God. Or the last time in anger you took the judge's seat. Because somebody crossed you. Our sinful flesh wants the world to revolve around self. But we need somewhat of a Copernican revolution, don't we? To remove self from the center so that God and His glory is the center. And that's what the Scriptures do, and that's what Revelation 4 is doing. Revelation 4 confronts that idea of self-worship. Revelation 4 shows that the world revolves around the worship of God. So from when you read your Bible in the morning to when you watch the sunset at night, when you pray and when you play on the grass outside that He sustains, from when you clock in at work to when you lie down for rest, everything in your life should revolve around the worship of God and the enjoyment of God's glory. Our chief end is to glorify and enjoy God. This vision of the throne also builds into our mind a high view of God that we should never surrender. A high view of God that we should never surrender. Uh, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer once wrote, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Were we able to extract from any person a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that person. Tozer continues, Perverted notions about God soon rot the religion in which they appear. The long career of Israel demonstrates this clearly enough, and the history of the church confirms it. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when, they, when that concept in any measure declines, the church, with her worship and her moral standards, declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. So Revelation 4 keeps our minds and our thoughts high about, about God. So where are you? What comes to your mind when you think about God? 
Are they thoughts like you see here in Revelation chapter 4? Or are your thoughts about God small? Have you so dulled your senses with lesser pleasures that you've grown bored with God? Revelation 4 shows us that God is not boring. The problem is with our hearts being so easily pleased. How else should we respond to this vision of God's throne? God's throne should compel repentance and deeper faithfulness. God's throne should compel your repentance and deeper faithfulness. I get this from the way that chapter 4 follows Jesus' message to Laodicea. Okay, remember that their, their earthly riches, the, the church in Laodicea, their earthly riches had duped them into thinking, I need nothing. We're okay without Jesus. And, and Jesus is outside the church. Right? And yet, for those who repent, Jesus, he held out to them the reward of God's throne in chapter 3, verse 21. And then he turns and he shows them the throne in chapter 4. So the glories of that throne are meant to compel their repentance. It's meant to awaken their zeal for God. And the throne should have the same effect on us. It's hard to give in to sin when you are beholding the throne. God. That's what will eventually change us, is it not? And from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we shall be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. Our problem now is that we're often far too distracted by lesser pleasures. Ten years ago, a sister named Blair Lynn uh, released a poem called The Perfection of Beauty. Some of you might have heard of it. I want to read it to you because I think it captures how this vision of God's beauty relates to our pursuit of holiness. Go listen to it yourself. Just type on YouTube, The Perfection of Beauty, Blair Lynn, L-I-N-N-E, um, it's also the first song on one of Shy Lynn's albums. It's her husband. Um, she says, Beauty is sold in exchange for a dime. Nothing to attract us to you, yet we worship your creation as fine, captivated by its forbidden fruit, pleasing our senses, so we suppress the truth, and eat the lie. Media's fig leaf deadening our soul and mind. Sin blinding us to you, the only objective beauty that's truly absolute. Hidden in the symmetry of your goodness, glory and truth, each attribute working harmoniously, justice with patience, wrath with graciousness, omnipotence with humility, long-suffering with faithfulness, each a note to a sweet melody, the ultimate hymn entitled God's Beauty. 
immutable, no change, because dimes get lost daydreaming in dark gutters, unable to hear the call to wake up. They, the noose, dripping honeysuckle, lips pasted on with MAC makeup. If they truly beheld your beauty, you'd make magazines and Mattel go bankrupt. You sent your beloved to be lifted up on a beautiful, seemingly ugly cross, the, the visible image of your hiddenness. Only you are beautiful and yet invisible. True beauty is spiritual. Therefore, sanctify our worldly minds. Your complexion is appealing to your 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 complexion is unappealing to lustful eyes. Besides, apart from new birth in Christ, sinners beholding your holy beauty would die. Therefore, beauty residing in the eye of the beholder is a lie. It is found in the beautiful one, the Most High. Blair Lynn is right. We need our minds sanctified. We need our eyes opened to what's truly beautiful. And when we see that true beauty, it compels repentance and deeper faithfulness. So I want to encourage you to meditate on God's throne And as you meditate, pray for the Holy Spirit to come. Pray for the Holy Spirit to fill you and to awaken you to what the Puritans used to call the expulsive power of a new affection. He would generate in your heart a love for God, a love for His glory, and that love, that affection that you have for God drives out everything that's unholy and sinful. Pray for the Spirit to help you love God's glory such that you want Him over sin. Something else. When others want your allegiance, let God's throne liberate you from the fear of man. When others want your allegiance, let God's throne liberate you from the fear of man. Within John's vision, the church is soon to anticipate these. Uh, the church, if we read, if you go back and read chapters two and three, the church is to anticipate people doing some really terrible things to them, and these evil powers are going to demand the church's allegiance, right? And uh, uh, for example, when the church in Smyrna received this book, this letter. Jesus told them, don't fear what you're about to suffer. You can imagine the church sitting there reading Jesus' words, don't fear what you're about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Can you imagine getting a letter from Jesus like that? This is is the first thing you read, and it gets to you. We're about to be thrown in prison. Using Rome like a puppet, Satan was about to imprison Christians. And prison is an intimidating place. It is disorienting. Prison is the place where torture happens. and You don't see your friends. And you're alone. So when the police come to these Christians and say, stop talking about Jesus or we'll finish you. 
Stop talking about Jesus or we'll burn your church. Stop talking about Jesus or we'll take your family. What enables you to say with the apostles, we must obey God rather than man? What enables that? It is the vision of God's majesty that the church of Smyrna would have then turned to in chapter 4. It is a vision of God enthroned. He is greater than all other authorities. Times will come, beloved, when others will intimidate you politically, socially, economically. Evil people will seek to win your allegiance. They will try to force you to bow to their ways, to bow to their flag, to bow to their cause. And the way you stay bold is by remembering God's throne. The one seated on the throne keeps all other authorities in their proper perspective. Here's a fifth point to consider. Give thanks that in Christ you have access to this throne. Give thanks that in Christ you have access to this throne. I want, this, I want to connect this passage with something we learned in Hebrews. It's also Advent season. So during the Advent season we remember how God sent His only Son... The son who had every right to receive the worship like we see here, and yet he set that aside and took the form of a servant. He gave himself, as chapter 1 verse 5 says, to free us from our sins by his blood. And it's because of that work that Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy to find grace to help in time of need. Now, apart from Jesus, this God that we read about is your enemy. His glorious might will be against you. But in Christ, His glorious might works for you. So, This access to the throne isn't just a future reality for the redeem, it's also a present reality. The one enthroned above all things, he works for your good. And so every day we can come to his throne. And in Christ, this holy, majestic God will receive us and he will hear us and he will help us. Why? Because in Christ, this one on the throne that's seated on the throne, he is your father. He is your father, and he calls you daughter and son. Then one more, and by no means have I exhausted these implications. Let God's throne reassure you that all his promises will come true. At members meeting a while back, I mentioned that a number of you were experiencing some weariness. You've been burdened by hurtful relationships, Um, you are emotionally drained, you've watched people walk away from Jesus, you've been laboring well but seeing little return, family is hard, and the holidays are about to make it harder. Your body is ill. 
the church at large, is, at large is struggling and some of the public interactions between Christians have left you discouraged. I mean, all of these things sometimes are just mounting up and mounting up more for you and you're, and you're weary. I know some of your burdens, but the Lord knows all of them. I just want you to, to, I want to repeat John's words here. Behold, a throne stood in heaven. Behold, your God enthroned. Under the weight that you're experiencing, under the suffering that you're experiencing, under the anxieties that you're experiencing, brother and sister, behold, God's throne. Nothing and no one can dethrone him, He rules with perfect power. Our sufferings have not surprised him or caused him any strain. He reigns with complete sovereignty. And he will see to it that history reaches its goal in Christ. So don't lose heart. He is in control. He will see to it that all of his promises to you will come true. So let's pray together.